Hello and welcome to The Regrettable Century. You are listening to part two of our discussion with Red Library about Marxism and psychoanalysis. If you have not yet listened to part one, please go and do that first. Before we get started, I'd just like to remind everyone that we have a Patreon and it only costs $2 to sign up. When you sign up to become a patron of The Regrettable Century, you get access to our irregularly posted bonus episodes and our patron roundtables. And you can join in on those patron roundtables if you join our Discord server, where we plan these sorts of things. And you also get to hang out and talk to a bunch of other Regrettable Century patrons and members of the Lost Horizons Network, which includes Red Library and From78. Please check out Red Library and From78. You can find them on your favorite podcatching app. And lastly, make sure to rate us and subscribe on your favorite podcatching app. Okay, enjoy the episode. Yeah, I know we're jumping all around, and I don't know if that uh, if that irks the the serious note takers in the room. But uh, <laughs> I resent going that, back Jason. To, <laughs> going back to the Lacanian psychoanalysis and revolutionary Marxism article, uh, I thought it was interesting that that it was pointed out from the from the, like the from the beginning. It was pointed out that uh, Marxism is is interested in the material foundations of human misery and how to end it. And psychoanalysis, too, insists that personal self-understanding isn't enough to get at the roots of human misery. So that there is like a, that there are sort of shared interests and and even if somewhat different approaches, shared uh, assumptions held in common, like uh, basically there's not enough to interpret the world, you have to change it. And that doesn't just mean changing yourself, but like it means changing the world around you as well. Even though one of those is maybe some sort of a, a generous addition or implication that one might draw out of psychoanalysis, at least up until we start to find the merger. And that the other one is the location of the work within an accumulating tradition. And I think that uh, originally I had a question about this, but uh, I think our conversation has actually basically answered the question. I only wanted to point it out because uh, when I read it in the article, I wasn't convinced. I was like, uh, you know, uh, maybe just because I don't know enough. But uh, but this conversation actually has convinced me that yeah these these things basically they are they are parallel tracks and they and they they needn't diverge you know they they can merge. Or what if they come together and then you know like disentangle and then reemerge? I mean this is why I think Ian Parker's description of them as dialectical opposites is actually the most fruitful one for me. Um, is is that the article I was just I didn't write the author's names down Ian Parker's yeah the yeah author I think of the, yeah yeah that's that's the one cool. I was just talking about yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you to ask a question for, for my own notes. Go ahead. <laughs> no, that's it. I just think that that's why I really like that idea of that they're dialectical opposites that, you know, have things to say to each other and maybe come together more synthetically at certain points, but then, you know, are rifted apart through contradictions and, you know, then they come back at like different orders or like, you know, however you want to say it. Um, but to me, I mean, I think that's kind of the historical, that's why the historical context is so crucial, you know, is to understand how like whenever... Marxism tried to reintegrate or like re reengage with psychoanalysis, right? It, it, they took those lessons of what worked in the Frankfurt School and, and what its limitations were, and then brought those back in a different way. And psychoanalysis was very different whenever it came back around, right? It's now based on structural linguistics and things like Claude Levi Strauss's work that Lacan was drawing on, and not so much like Freud's theories. And, and I think it combined with Marxism in a very different way, you know, similar in certain ways, but also very different, and led to different insights and different things that were useful. So, I mean, to me, it's almost like you know, it's almost like the question shouldn't even be like, well, can they 
be synthesized or like combined or not. It's a question of like, well, how, how you know, like at what points and at what times is it actually useful to combine them and, mm-hmm. and, and then to understand why that might break down, you know, and then maybe to be reintegrated at another point. Right. I think, yeah, I think when I earlier asked the question, uh, the leading question, rather, the, the question plus comment, where I said that, uh, you know, I don't know if I sort of get how these things track in terms of the creation of this kind of Marxism, that kind of Marxism, that kind. I think that's basically that I was grasping toward is more an open-ended question of like, it, it, as a project for us for all time, it's like, can we endeavor to figure out the useful points of intersection, useful uh, influences that these things can have on each other? As opposed to just like, oh, we're going to mash them together and they permanently coexist as a new kind of thing, which I don't think is dialectical. I think that's a, or rather that's vulgarly dialectical, right? That's the, the, the Hegel for babies that we're still trying to work past. (laughs) Hegel for dumb babies, yeah. (laughs) Thesis, antithesis, synthesis, which is like a useful starting point, but really just scratching at the surface of, of what, uh, what is you know, what the dialectical reason is all about and why it's useful. Yeah. I think that would, that would suggest like, here's the one thing and the other, we put them together. Now we have a new thing and it's, it's, uh, well, it's more interesting and more complicated than that. It sounds like mixing two colors together, you get the third color instead of mixing two different kinds of Play-Doh together and getting this weird fucking (laughs) Play-Doh mess where the two colors are just like, yeah. Yeah. Like you're going to have like a yin yang and everything's going to stay separate. And what you end up with is like a shit brown, just like <laughs> yeah. just nothing looks like anything anymore. Which is really how I would describe me and Alex's position on the combination of psychoanalysis and Marxism. It's really just a shit brown, chaotic mishmash of two different Plato's. Right. Well, yeah. So it's funny that you mentioned that. The two different Plato's? Sorry. <laughs> Boo. Ooh. Boo this man. Yeah. I, I hate <laughs> no, that you, I hate that you just made that joke, but I do think it brought up an interesting question, which we'll talk about offline. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Somebody's in trouble. <laughs> am I am I gonna get am I getting whipped? Please, I don't want it. Anyway. You, <laughs> well, never mind. I was gonna make a joke about you being the commissary degeneracy. But no, I was just gonna mention no, no, you're not getting stolen. I'm just saying we're gonna get probably shit faced and have a discussion about two different kinds of play doh. <laughs> All right. Right. So <laughs> I thought it was interesting, badass. Alex Alex, the way that you said it, you know, you sort of you, you hope or you imagine it to be something like a yin yang and that we've achieved a synthesis, a harmony. Right. And, yeah. uh, and I do think that that's the majority of the way that, 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 that dialectics are, are sort of taught or internalized. And they were for me for a very long time. Um, and that's, I think it lends itself to this, you know, this recurring perennial nonsense about the real Marxist tradition, because if once you've arrived at synthesis, if that's the thing, then you have to make sure that the black part and the white part of your yin and yang are the right things. And, yeah. uh, and it, it doesn't leave room for what contradiction does, which is create uh, a higher order of new contradiction based on the previous contradictions. So yeah. that like the marks of, of uh, the Marxism of the second international and the psychoanalysis of Freud, uh, are, are both different and related to the Marxism of today and the psychoanalysis of Lacan or even of, of somebody that I don't know about because I basically know three psychoanalysts' names. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like The point is that these things both develop in tandem with each other and in contradiction with each other and over each other in this kind of permanent leapfrogging. And that's just true of everything. 
But I think it's a lot easier to take the dialectics for dumb babies approach, right? I mean, I think it's just a, it's cognitively less taxing <laughs> to have to, to think of the world that way. I mean, I think that, you know, this is why we're, we're currently in the midst of trying to work out our, uh, our Lost Horizons Etsy store merch, which is going to be the Guns N' Roses logo, but with the skulls of like Mao and Martz, and it's going to say appetite for contradiction, because I think that, that is something. Oh, <laughs> that is something. <laughs> Just so you know, you two started that joke on our last roundtable. Actually, I think Jason, you started that joke on the last roundtable, so you're to blame. Yeah, I remember. See, like a lot of the like long running terrible things are my fault. It's just because I don't assume that they'll go beyond the instance. Like, like a dumb baby, I, I basically forget about it as soon as I'm done dealing with it. You don't have object permanence. Well, now it's going to be on our That's merch. Right. So <laughs> you're experiencing. So, like at the beginning of the, uh, I, I'm sorry, I just hated this article so much. This Collier article. At the beginning of the Collier article, he makes like this argument that. Um, something about like in psychoanalysis like or like in linguistics if you replace a word with a new word then the other word just falls away but that like in in you know marxist analysis of of class that like if like a person and a worker gets replaced then that worker doesn't just fall away like he's still materially there or something like that and i kind of like feel like you just experience the reason why that statement is incorrect that like like the words don't go away you know like they're, they're still there anyway that's maybe just my perspective as a I, I didn't get his whole point with the way he was talking about language didn't seem to add anything to the point at all. Like, I didn't understand that. I mean, it, yeah, join, join the club. I, I think I think there were definitely <laughs> things that I took away from it. And I was kind of seeing my interpretation was that what he was trying to say was that um, Freud retained a certain openness to the to the sort of contingency of the circumstance within which he was like uh, having patients come to him and in his development of like the Oedipal idea and like all of these, all of these different things that Freud talked about that like Freud always left a space open for those things to not be like, what is the human psyche or like what con constitutes like human mind, so to speak, but like rather was a consequence of culture and like how people interpreted their position and role in society mm -hmm. and all of these other contingent things. And that, um, Lacan by changing language that he was using slightly was kind of like foreclosing on that, that openness. Um, but also, yeah, like I kind of feel like it was just somebody who was just kind of like desperately grasping at anything that they could find in Lacan that even remotely seemed hooey, you know, or like sort of like woo, 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 you know, and like just, just being like, that's not, that's not science. That's not, you know, like you're, you're no one to claim, you know, to. That's the worst thing about Lacan. It's like, <laughs> yeah. There's no, I mean, I think that. it is. I think it is. I think there's a degree to which like Lacan can be like uh, almost unintelligible to people, but like there's a certain consistency there you know, for what it's worth. <laughs> like here, here we are like all just trying to like make sense of what that consistency is. But like at the same time, it's not, not there. No, I, I was just joking. I, I think that the worst thing about Lacan is how inaccessible he is to the, to like someone who's trying to learn Lacan. Right. And that's sort of like psychoanalysis as a whole, really like reading this kind of stuff to me, it's a lot different than reading like philosophy or reading uh, history or, Marxist political stuff. It's it's like an entirely different set of terms. It's an entirely different language. It's written differently. It's uh it's it's a lot less accessible. 
and I, I find it a lot harder to read this stuff than I do pretty much anything else that I read on a regular basis. Totally. So whenever I read something that I disagree with, and I'm like, shit, maybe I just didn't understand it. <laughs> that's exactly what I did. <laughs> that's, uh, <laughs> that's what I, the I wrote here. The prevailing saving grace of all, all the canis throughout the ages is just that people will always be like, but did I get it though? Like, I don't even know. It's I, the same know. with fucking Hegel for me too. And I'm like, yeah. well, that didn't make any sense. Maybe I just didn't understand it. <laughs> That's why I wrote the note that says, uh, you know, if, uh, where is it? If a scientist uses language to communicate and not tantalize, then I can say safely that no uh, Lacanian is a scientist. It's not really a position I have. It just means I have a hard time understanding what I'm reading. (laughs) Well, I I had a joke that I, that I wrote down that I'm seeing now. So basically like, it's kind of like, so it came from the, the four fundamental concepts of, uh, of uh, Zizek article and he was kind of talking about like um, the criticism I, I, I relate it back to this because you know there was a criticism being made by Collier that like there was sort of a Eurocentrism to um, like Freud's Freud's development of his ideas that he like understood as contingent and that Lacan kind of foreclosed that or whatever and I, I was like remembering what I read in the other article and uh, he kind of quotes uh, let me pull it up so that I don't sound like an idiot. Uh, he quotes Zizek and Zizek has this quote that says like the universality of capitalism resides in the, this is on page 15 of that, uh, the Zizek article or the whatever. I don't remember the, <laughs> the guy's name. What's his fucking name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, universality of capitalism resides in the fact that capitalism is not a name for a civilization, for a specific cultural symbolic world, but the name for a truly neutral economico symbolic machine, which operates with Asian values as well as with others. The problem with capitalism is not its secret Eurocentric bias, but the fact that it really is universal, a neutral matrix of social relations, a real in Lacanian terms. And so like, I had this like moment of like, holy shit, because I like up on my, I have like a whiteboard that I write ideas down on. And on my whiteboard, I had written like um, people who criticize uh, like the tenets of, of, of Western civilization as being like European or like the people who criticize psychoanalysis or Marxism as being like too Western European. I'm like, no, we European, like, <laughs> like, we. <laughs> I, was, I know there was a lot of setup for that. <laughs> I think the payoff was worth it though. <laughs> we, we do be European though. We European. <laughs> yeah. I, I've, I can't believe that Freud would dare to have a Eurocentric outlook being a person that existed for the age of mass media in fucking Austria. <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, yeah. how the fuck would, would he do anything else? Right. It's, it's our job to adapt him to other fucking spheres. Right. Or not our job. There's like people that are dead now. I think no, this does... what, what Freud should have done is not written anything down until he had traveled the entire world and had direct experiences with everything. I was just <laughs> going to mention, I do think that one of the real states in this discussion um, and like maybe why psychoanalysis and, and Marxism ha- do have something important to say to each other, why they try to be combined is a conversation about universals versus particulars. You know, the idea that for a Lacanian psychoanalysis, the the states or the the claim is is that universality as something that bridges together, you know, all subjects, right, across like context and across like individual and particular perspectives is the sort of nature of being like (laughs) having this traumatic cut at the core of your being, which cannot be reducible to any particular context. And if there is something that Marxism, I think, is still in the business of, 
I think it's also staking a claim to some kind of universal politics. So, I mean, to, maybe to me, like part of why they do need to be put in dialogue together is because one is a universal politics and the other is a way to think about, well, what is a, what is the basis for a universal subject, which could then give rise to a universal politics in a way. And I think that that's, you know, where someone, again, like some of the better Lacanian theorists right now who are talking about politics, like Supanchich and people like that, it's precisely why they talk about the unconscious and situation as being the starting point, like the most radical things, because those create a basis for a universality, which, you know, it like begins or it's sort of like definitional of even how you think about yourselves as like being like a sexed, you know, biological being and how that's shot through with symbolic aspects and how that relates to signifiers. And so, you know, again, I mean, that's like a huge complex mess of shit to like bring up. But I do think this question of universality is is really primary. And I think it's one that is typically in the background and like discuss. So for example, you know, like we were kind of making some digs at like how shit goes down on like Twitter, right? And how people talk about things about like oppression on Twitter. You know, the thing that like usually never gets talked about is how these are a lot of times are like discussions about universal versus particular bases of politics. And I think if you're interested in what a potential basis for a universal subject could be, I mean, again, if you want to understand that on like a individual level and like how that shapes our experiences, again, I, show me a better tool than psychoanalysis. I don't think you're going to find one at this point. And I say that as, you know, the thing that could encapsulate things around gender and race and ability like psychoanalysis, I think has the most radical perspectives on these very things themselves. And as long as you're reading like the right people and looking for it, you're going to find analysts who have tons of things to say about these particular identities. So, you know, again, I, I just think that if, if we're talking about a universal politics, I, I, again, I mean, show me two better frameworks that, that have the most radical shit to say about them. I, I haven't found them and I've been looking. I'm going to take your word for it. Until I read some more. <laughs> I will send you a reading list, which <laughs> okay, you will okay, never get to. Read the goddamn book. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this will be a first for the podcast. And, uh, and in all defiance of my previously uh, self-imposed limits on dumb, stupid jokes. But uh, <laughs> in limits, <laughs> I was trying. I really was. But um. This is the first time in my life I've ever found it useful uh, or found it appropriate to make a Boy Meets World reference. But <laughs> there's the oh, one episode, there's I'm the excited. one thing that Mr. Feeney would always do every time that the main characters would do anything and he would just yell, go open a book. And that's who Adam is in this discussion. He's Mr. Feeney. I, I will say I'm a little sort of shocked and appalled that I'm the most serious one in this discussion. I, I will say, let me <laughs> let me tag something on just to also critique Marxists and and analysts on this point as well. Um, you know, so Alex and I are getting prepped to do our final ep for the year, which is on Mari Rudy's The Singularity of Being. And I think one of the things that Mari Rudy is most sharp about in her criticism of people like Zizek or Elaine Badiou or other Marxists and psychoanalysts and this discussion about universal versus particular is precisely in the way that despite their claims to have a universal subjectivity that could encapsulate all these different things, they radically fail in their understanding of things like feminism, of like queer theory. Like in a lot of ways, they have like a pretty simplified and outdated view of the very questions that are being grappled with in these disciplines. So I think that, you know, and in some ways, 
if you take universal subjectivity seriously and radical emancipatory politics seriously, you know, it isn't to say like just study Marxism and psychoanalysis. It also means to to understand, you know, the limitations of these key thinkers and to and to push further, you know, than that. And I think to me that that's kind of how I relate to these things now is to also just, you know, kind of want to also relate or, or look for more complex ways and interesting ways to discuss those areas too, because those are, they are grappling with these questions. Again, you just kind of got to know where to look. I mean, it's hard, but, it, but it's there. Yeah. And I kind of feel like, I feel like it's not even so much that those thinkers, you know, maybe like a Zupanchich or a Zizek or, um, you know, whatever, Lambda do or somebody don't necessarily have the capacity within their own a body of work to like incorporate those new viewpoints or those new sort of like emancipatory um, like you might call them identities or like uh, schools of thought that are like developing. It's just that they don't take the time to take them seriously. It's almost like they have just staken their claim or it's like st- stake their claim in something. And they just like, don't have the capacity to like backtrack and be like, Oh, well that could also be a thing. Like it's almost like all what we've been talking about. And, and some of these articles maybe are like, like, like hinting at is that maybe there's a degree to which like, a new a, a new proletarian subject might have have to do with a, a subject of desire more so than it has to do with like what we would typically think of as a, of a as a class position right mm-hmm. because the distinctions within class that we traditionally had before have all of these like sort of like pitfalls and like overlaps and like ways of sort of escaping from those determinations that that maybe functioned in the past when society was structured differently and yeah, I don't know. You know, maybe we're going to have to think differently about how we can define, you know, a, a group of people that Marxism pertains to, you know, and we would need a domain of thought like psychoanalysis to like help us make that determination. And maybe it also needs to have some people thinking about it through some other, you know, domains of thought to like bring it up into the fold. I mean, it's like when I talk to young, you know, the youths or whatever of today, like, like baby Marxists and shit, all, it's like the only way that they understand how to ask about these, these things is like, oh, I heard somebody mention thinker X and like, what should my response to that person be, you know? And it's like, they just don't have a way of disembodying like their own capacity to like consider uh, the the question from their own informed perspective. They just want to know like what it is that a proletarian would say or what it is that a Marxist would say. And it's kind of like, no, no, like that's not how it really works. And so, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard. <laughs> There's a that meme which has the, the guy saying, bro, you literally changed my life. And then Marx saying, you've never even read one of my books. <laughs> So that's where we are in the conversation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know that meme. I was also um, reminded of when, something that. When are we not in that? That's a good point. Yeah, I was going to say I was also oh, reminded I of. It. I was reminded of something that Alex said on our Lenin 2017 episode way back at the beginning of Red Library two years ago, which was kind of about this very same discussion and basically saying, you know, if we're talking about rev- who is the revolutionary subject today. How does that make sense to the SoundCloud rapper? <laughs> <You know? laughs> but I, do, but I do think it was a really relevant point, which is like, you know, does my analytical framework within like quote unquote Marxism does it allow me to make sense of what that person's experience is? And honestly, if it doesn't, you know, maybe then then we need to expand that or, or to to bring in some other tools um, to help us make sense of the people who are most under the boot 
of capitalism today, right? Which is an increasingly complex and, and disparate group of people that is shifting and changing over time and in more and more rapid ways. So I, I think it's almost like if we want to do justice to, you know, what it means to call oneself a Marxist, whatever that is, you know, I, I, I think that it demands that we we sort of look at these tools like psychoanalysis and, and help it, you know, and help us think differently and and think more creatively about these things. Because I think in a lot of ways, these are questions about like, how creative are we as thinkers, you know, and, and people who are trying to analyze and make sense of what capitalism is. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's why psychoanalysis still is this like fundamental tool, because it's like, I have a hard time making sense of my own experience, the experience of the people I work with in therapy, and, you know, our comrades and our friends and our family, without some other framework that doesn't just help me explain to them the, you know, why the the rate of profit is bound to fall and crisis is bound to happen, but also to say, like, how do you experience the day-to-day conditions of your life? Because I tell you, like, the thing is, I'm probably going to have a much better chance at getting them to sort of shift their political view on the world with those discussions versus, you know, handing them a book by Robert Brenner, as much as I love Robert Brenner, you know, and want to talk about the merchant class in like 15th century Western Europe. Yeah, I'm down. That's how you convert me to Marxism, right? <laughs> and, and but again, you know, it's like different tools for different. Just buy people, me a right? pizza. That's how you convert me. <laughs> Simply that diversity of tactics is what you need. Or you a bottle need, of whiskey. Yeah. Maybe no bottle of whiskey. You need a pizza I, I in one hand. You need a pizza and a bottle of whiskey for someone like Alex. You need Robert Brenner for someone <laughs> like Chris. I'm just saying, diversity of tactics is all I'm getting at here. Alf, hey, boom. All the motherfuckers. <laughs> this is the diversity of tactics that I now subscribe to since we've developed this idea. Alf Haybung the motherfuckers? Yeah, Alf Haybung all the motherfuckers. Preserve them. Listen, that's, that's what I came here to do. We only have a couple minutes tops left, right? And I, I think it would be good if Adam and Alex gave us kind of like final thoughts, if that was a, if if you have any, just to kind of like make sure we're getting as much out of this conversation as we can. Yeah, just because I don't I don't know what questions to ask. Explain Lacan to me, or I'll fucking kill you. <laughs> uh, um, so Lacan was a man born at no, okay. Um, so, like, <laughs> um, but no, I I think the 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 episode is supposed to be about um like revolutionary politics and and Lacanian thought and Marxism and the sort of link between all those things. And I say, or I, I would, I think I would say that like overall, maybe the conclusions that I would want people to take away from this would be that there is a radical <clears throat> like emancipatory potential in Lacan in, in a particular kind of way, maybe not in the way that um, you might typically conceive of it and it might require you to understand concepts in Lacan that like you guys have talked about are really difficult to understand. But um, it, it's, you know, like you guys said, it's a thing that people have been engaging with and trying to discuss for like about a, like a century now. And it's something that I think has become like this new, really interesting domain that everybody wants to like take a, take a bite of and kind of like say their, say their piece about. And I think, it's something to be um, considered. And I think there's like a hard line within the psychoanalytic community that is detracting from that and maybe making, um, making a criticism of like taking Lacan out of the context of the clinic um, as being like irresponsible. And I would say that um, maybe um, 
screw you guys and maybe like we're gonna do that anyway so like uh let's uh let's uh, stop being let's let's stop gatekeeping and like let's let like allow ideas to be used for for what uh they might be most productively or fruitfully used for Actually, I'm going to I'm going to try to give you the the second of the one two punch about this. Uh yes, I would agree. Uh screw any gatekeeping, all your Lacan, all your psychoanalysis are belong to us. I would say if you want to know what those two ideas are, um I think that are the most radical. I think you know, if you want to know in this grand body of thought, this tradition what to look for, ask your like may un, try to understand what the unconscious is and and like why was it why was a theory needed to explain this in the first place as the way that we there are these gaps and fissures and breakdowns in how we are trying to be integrated into the social order i think that's one two understand what sexuality means for psychoanalysis because i think if you really want to know what the heart of the theory is it's about these two things and this goes all the way back to freud and the dora case and everything else so you know Ask yourself those two questions. Like, instead of being like, oh, what should I read? Should I read this person? Should I read that person? I would just say, take those two ideas, find any source in psychoanalysis you can that would help you understand those, and read widely about what people think those two things are. Um, And I think if you want to know the link between that and revolutionary politics, I think you're probably going to find it there. Yeah. Um, and just like self selfish plug, I guess. Um, but like we, we have an episode on what is sex by Lenka Zupancic. And I think that that book in particular is like a really concise, dense, but very concise introduction to both of those concepts and like really does implicate all of those political consequences yep. that, um, could come from, you know, the idea of sex and psychoanalysis as well as, uh, you know, the unconscious and like what it really stems from, uh, you know, in symbolism. So yeah. Yeah what adam said i concur so say we all read zupancic i just i like how slavic her name is so i'll do it i i legitimately think like she i mean she her brilliance is unparalleled to me so i think if you're interested in this topic i i really don't think you're gonna find someone better to read than zupancic uh and that book what is sex i think is her best
na nadlach tych Rimskozi odparte rane Utikali prekrižane roke Yeah.